Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right, guys, welcome back. And hey, just like every other time, if there's something that you see on this podcast that resonates with you, that you think needs to be shared out to the greater community, we ask you to do that. Don't be selfish with it. Share it to the people that it needs to be shared to. Uh, tonight's uh, special guest coming on is Lieutenant Colonel Retired Wayne Phelps. He wrote the book on killing remotely, the psychology of killing with drones. And being that Drone warfare is just about everywhere right now, plastered all over your news stations from, you know, the Ukraine conflict and different conflicts going on around force design. For those of you in the Marine audience out there, drones is a big deal. It's a big uh, conversation right now to be had. And um, and so I picked up the book. I read it. I loved it. And uh, and uh, Wayne's been generous enough with his time to meet up tonight and make this happen. I really appreciate that, sir. And thanks for coming on to the show. Well, thanks, Ryan, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. As am I, as am I. So I basically have a little structure of uh, uh, questions that I'd like to get, uh, kind of pick your brain on a little bit. And, and it just kind of starts out with where were you uh, born and raised, uh, siblings, mother, father, household, religion, that kind of stuff. We'll just start with uh, where you came up and where you were at in the pecking order. Okay. Yeah. So I'm an only child. Uh, so <laughs> no siblings at all. Um, I grew up, uh, I was born and raised in Midwestern Illinois, uh, near Macomb, Illinois. And uh, when I was 10, I moved down to uh, Southern Illinois, just North of St. Louis uh, and spent the rest of my formative years in, in the St. Louis area. Went to, went to college, you know, university there at St. Louis university and, uh, commissioned in the Marine Corps right after that. Right on. And both parents in the household? Yeah, you know, my uh, my dad was a single father for about a year. Uh, my parents divorced around the time I was 10. And then they remarried. And my stepmom adopted me um, at that point. So, but yeah, but both parents in the house for the most part. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. Yeah. And uh, what about religion? Was there religion, religion in the household at all when you were younger? Yeah, you know, I I went to uh, went to vacation Bible school in the summer times. Went to church on Sundays. Uh, religion was was really big uh, with my grandparents as well. You know, kind of grew up Baptist. Sure. Um, you know, and I would say that uh, kind of slid further and further away from religion the further removed I was from my grandparents. Um, so by the time I was a teenager, it wasn't a big part of my life and. You know, I went to a, a private Catholic uh, college and, you know, it was religion was there, but it wasn't wasn't at the forefront of my life at that point. So, Roger. And then uh, and then Marine Corps really probably didn't aid in that with op tempo and things of that nature following <laughs> on. Huh? No, it didn't. But, uh, you know, you always kind of revisit things that uh, were important to you in your youth. So it's yeah, it's sure. definitely come back. So outstanding and in the time coming up did you were you in sports or recreational activities things of that nature 
I was, yeah. So I played, I played baseball since I was five. Um, you know, played on the varsity team my sophomore year, junior and senior year in high school. Um, played competitive basketball for about four years, and then I moved to a larger school where the you know the talent pool was a little a little greater than what I was used to, and <laughs> did didn't make the team. Uh, couldn't, couldn't play football. I was, you know, scrawny, uh, <laughs> scrawny t- fish t- in a bigger pond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So yeah. I stuck with baseball. Uh, I was pretty good, pretty good in baseball. Didn't play any competitive sports in college, but played a lot of intramurals. And I've always enjoyed that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I find it. Um, I have my kids as well coming up and you know, like, we all try to do this the first time on our own, like figuring out how to be good parents and how to, you know, try to give your kids the best possible start, you know, and I feel like competitive sports is a big thing. I think it's, I think it's a place that you grow. I think the coaching is a, you know, a lot of my coaches I've looked at as mentors throughout my life, you know, a good deal of them. And I think there's a lot to be said there. And then, you know, it's where you really start to lead those peers for the first time and leading people for the first time in those young you know, even intramural or recreational sports, you're learning how to deal with other people. And, and so I find that necessary. Um, uh, and it seems to me and most of the people that I interviewed that were sound leaders later in their life, they had that in the beginning. And so pretty wild. And so what about, um, so you joined the Marine Corps, but what was your catalyst to your service? Was there a catalyst or was it get out of Dodge or? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, my, my relationship with my father when I was in college was a little contentious and I was looking for, for a way to, to get out of the house. Uh, I always wanted to travel, see the world, you know, grew up kind of, uh, you know, fairly poor. We didn't travel. Uh, we didn't have the opportunity to do that. I, I didn't fly on an airplane until, uh, I went to OCS when I was 19. <laughs> So, you know, Marine Corps paid for my first, first, uh, airplane ticket. So, okay. um, yeah. So I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get out of the Midwest and want to see the world. Um, I joined before nine 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I went to OCS in 95 and 96 and then commissioned in 97, uh, I came on active duty in 98. So I had a few years of, of times before nine 11. So it was, sure, sure. It was, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see the, uh, you know, see the Marine Corps then and see it uh, definitely pivot after 9-11. Pivot and evolve into the war machine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were always the war machine, but. <laughs> it just wasn't active. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what you said something right there that piqued my interest. Um, oh, okay. So you said the cat, the catalyst was just kind of getting out of there, but what makes you choose the hardest of all the service branches? I think it was the challenge, right? I mean, we're, we're all kind of attracted to the, the commercials initially, you know, the uh, person in a cool uniform fighting a dragon or, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever it might be. Right. So um, I had a, I had an uncle who was in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Uh, my grandpa was in the Navy in World War II. My great grandpa was in the army in World War One. My cousin, uh, joined the Marine Corps. Uh, he was a year younger than me, but he joined right out of high school. So he was coming to the end of his his service about the same time that uh, that I was coming in. Um, so it was, you know, it was in our family. 
uh, had another cousin in the Navy as well. Um, uh, so it was, you know, it was kind of in our family. Um, and I, I just wanted the challenge. Uh, I thought the Marine Corps had the reputation of being the best and, you know, I wanted to be part of that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds like a family business the way you put it right there. You got enough, family, yeah. you got enough family to fill a small platoon at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least a squad minus, right? Yeah, hey, let's go all the way through all right so uh so you commission and you come in where's your first unit uh my first unit i was uh it was at third lad battalion camp pendleton and so your first unit you pick up your first unit was at third lad battalion yeah third lad battalion out of camp pendleton and what are we doing what's our what's our op tempo our training schedule that kind of thing when you pick in you know it was uh so it was pre 9-11. So we were doing a couple of uh, CACs exercises a year, a couple of uh, WTI exercises. So the, the, op, the op tempo was, you know, it was pretty significant, but it was mostly training. And then we would send small detachments out on, uh, on news. So th those were the opportunities you had to deploy back then was if you wanted to you know, get close to the fight or have the potential to get into the fight. You had to go on a mew. So I, I spent some time as a platoon commander, you know, did a bunch of training, uh, spent some time working in, in ops after that, and then volunteered uh, to go on a MEW. Uh, and I was on the 15th MEW. I left San Diego on August 13th, 2001. And we were in Darwin, Australia, just wrapping up some training with the Aussies uh, on 9-11. That's what I was going to ask you was, so... That's probably a – I've talked to multiple guys that were in um, on the podcast when it happened, and they said it was almost a surreal event. What was it like when you guys got news of it? Or were you able to watch it? Yeah, it was surreal. It was uh, It's probably like 9.30 in the evening over there, and it was our first day of liberty, so you can imagine what Marines and sailors were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it was <laughs> – there was a lot of boozing going on. It, it was uh, – yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was on the phone with my wife back in California and she was living with a couple of my, uh, you know, a couple of my peers that were lieutenants in the unit. And one of them came in and said, Hey, you got to turn on the TV. So she's kind of walking through play by play of what's happening. And I mm. said, you know, hun, I, I just got to go. I think this is, we're going to get recalled and something's about to happen here. So, mm -hmm. you know, sure enough, went back up to the hotel room, <clears throat> the entire Mew got recalled and we kind of got online and walked through the, you know, the bar district there in Darwin and just Calling got everybody out. Yeah. Pulled everybody back. Um, I got back to the ship and there was a message on my door waiting for me that said the Mew commander wants to see you, <laughs> you know, and I'm a Lieutenant at the time. I was like, you know, what, what does the Mew commander want to see me for right yeah. after nine 11? So I go down to his, his office and, uh, and he said, Hey, uh, with everything that's going on, we think we want to put some stinger missiles up on the flight deck to defend the ship. He was like, what do you think about that? And in the room, he had the Mew Opso with him. He had, he had the Jag sitting next to him. Who's just kind of shaking his head like, oh, this is a, you know, this is a horrible idea. And, you know, he asked me what I thought. And I said, well, this was uh, Colonel Waldhauser at the time, you know, later General Waldhauser. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, sir, I think it's, I think it's a bad idea for a few reasons. You know, first, you know, the, the attacks are from commercial airliners and you know, we're probably not going to be able to bring one of those down 
with a stinger that's going to prevent it from you know running into the ship if it's determined to fly into our ship mm-hmm. uh said second you know what's the rules of engagement how how do we determine when we let a stinger fly uh in the you know in harbor in a foreign country you know and the jag is is over there like oh yeah that's that's a nightmare great point yeah and i said and, and finally and probably most important i should have led with this is at this hour i'm going to be hard pressed to find a sober stinger gunner <laughs> oh yeah yeah then what yeah mm. yeah so and he was like okay yeah fair point phelps uh, we're not going to go with the live <laughs> live live stingers up on the flight deck so just had to get an outside perspective yeah but you know we were all trying to figure out what to do right it was it was just so unprecedented and everybody Mm -hmm. was in shock we didn't know but uh that mew if you're familiar with what we did uh we ended up going off the coast of of pakistan uh supporting operations right at the start of the war and we ended up doing the longest amphibious assault in marine corps history into southern afghanistan into uh, camp rhino Hmm. So a landlocked country, and we're doing an amphibious assault from from the Mew. The 26th Mew joined with us. They put uh, General Mattis in charge of it, made mm-hmm. it to Task Force 58 under his command. And, you know, we just kind of raged there for a little while in southern Afghanistan. And what did that look like once you were on the ground? Well, I, I was in uh, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So I, I set up a uh, forward arming and refueling point okay. so, the hel- so the helicopters could get all the way up there. And uh, me and, and my Marines, our, our role was just to provide security for this FARP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a bunch of Pakistanis that were providing outer perimeter security. And, and it was it was really interesting. Um, now, the host nation that you're working with there, they're tribal, non, non-Taliban, I would assume, tribal leaders or? I mean, they were regular Pakistani military. So oh, oh you're working pa- with Pakistani yeah. military. Okay. Yeah, Pakistani army. In fact, one of the one of the officers I worked with during that deployment came to command and staff college the same time I was there, and we were in school together. Hmm. And recognized him. It was, it was really it was Wild. the strangest thing. Yeah. Wild. And now, did you guys take? Uh, did you guys have any any kind of any kind of contact uh, holding security on the farm? Uh, no, not really. Uh, you know, the area that we were at was, um, it was in the middle of nowhere, kind of surrounded, uh, by mountains on all sides. And it was a tribal area. Mm. So the only, the only folks that would come by were, you know, local farmers that were just curious and stuff, but we would, uh, you know, we'd keep them at bay, but there were, there were times where we'd hear gunshots in the distance, but it was, you know, it's probably people that are out there hunting and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, what I thought was really cool about uh, being there uh, was at a at a point later in that deployment, uh, the first two predators that were armed with hellfires showed up there and they were they were manned by some OGA folks mm-hmm. and, and they were flown by some Air Force folks back in the United States. And one of the the OGA team leaders was a former gunny in the Marine Corps. He took a liking to us, obviously, and he let us come in and watch all the stuff that they do. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really cool because at the time, nobody knew that we had predators that were armed. Mm-hmm. And nobody, nobody knew that we were using them to hunt for bin Laden. Mm-hmm. So, and they were armed. What were they armed with that time? Was it Hellfires? Yeah, it was Hellfires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's wild. It's um, the drone thing was just kind of over. I don't know if it was just over my head. If I just didn't notice it until about 2010, like I deployed no six oh seven time frame, and like we had the Ravens and the little throw ISR style drones, but we didn't like it wasn't a real big thing. And then when we went into Marja for Operation uh, Mosh Rock, it was it was different. There was drones everywhere. You had ISR if you needed it. We had armed predators that were in zone for us, uh, almost almost on command if you needed them, at least there for a while. And so I missed the evolution because I just never seen the beginning of it. I, I wasn't operating in an area where, where we were using them a whole lot. And then at the end, and even now, you know, past that, reading the book, there's a wealth of knowledge and in this book and we'll cover some of it guys but there's just you got to get on it there's a wealth of knowledge if you need to know anything about the uh remote piloted aircrafts as far as i mean wayne does a great job in breaking down classifications of drones for for size uh uh payload uh, um, different sensors that are on the drones the different ranges that the different drones have and and it really breaks down the capabilities that we have which is pretty amazing and we'll get kind of into that, but I thought uh, I picked the I picked the book up just because of how well I read all of Grossman's Grossman stuff on the on the Marine Corps reading list and picked the book up. I'm like on oh, killing, okay, on oh, killing remotely. I well, let's see what this is about, and just really really thought that for the time that we're in right now, it's a necessary conversation. So um, we'll get uh, we'll get past that. So your first unit, you you're out on the Mew. You ended up doing the amphibious landing uh to a landlocked country and so coming out of that you're coming back are you switching out units or are you staying in that unit still no i actually stayed with that unit uh i stayed there for five years okay and, and i did three deployments uh with that unit so i came back um picked up captain i i picked up battery command as well so okay. I, I became a battery commander and then we got word that we were we were on the force list to go to, uh, to Kuwait and, you know, wait for the invasion into Iraq. So, mm -hmm. uh, I was a battery commander during the initial invasion. Um, so that was 2003, uh, came back from that deployment and then had, uh, had about a year before we went back to the next deployment where we were at, uh, Al Assad. Okay. And because there was no air threat during that time, uh, the the lad battalions found themselves doing provisional infantry missions. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. There wasn't wasn't enough boots on the ground to do everything right. And, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't want to take infantry battalions and have them garden, uh, you know, bases and stuff. It yep. just wasn't a good use of manpower. You know, you guys should be out there closing closing with and destroying the enemy. But um, if you're stuck guarding a base, you get a little disgruntled. So, yeah. so they were taking lad battalions, and and we were augmented with all kinds of you know cooks and candlestick makers and you know the the marine corps band and you know the wing band and all these folks and and we'd run them through training and then you know they would they would do some of the tasks and and we would we would use the lad guys for for things like you know patrolling and mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. stuff like that so that's that's what i did in 2004 uh that, that was my third deployment and then uh, I, I did two more deployments after that in my career uh the fourth one was uh during the surge in afghanistan um, uh, at camp leatherneck, we, mm -hmm. we kind of own the battle space around leatherneck and, um, doing the same thing. I think it was about 900 square miles of battle space. We had a 
patrol base and you know doing patrols and stuff like that sure that was that was real interesting because i was a battalion xo at the time and, and we had a coalition of like five different nations that all reported to my co uh in the same battle space and yeah. only a few of them worked for him the rest were like the afghan national army um there was a uh it was the Dane, the Danes uh, were advisors to the okay. ANA, and then we had Bahrainis, yep. and then um, and we had Brits uh, attached to us as well. So yep. Yep. it was really really cool to sync all those efforts across you know five different nations in one battle space. It was it was a really rewarding deployment, and it was it's probably the most kinetic uh, you know, deployment I had with. Uh, out of all my deployments, yeah, even even the invasion of Iraq is it wasn't as yeah wasn't as as uh, yeah, exciting for me as as it was in 2010. So yeah, I think 10 was a whole. I mean, yeah, definitely that's that's the most wild fight I've ever been in, and like across all spectrums from the weapons that were used to to like the enemies that we hit. I mean, I never thought I'd fight machine gun bunkers. Fought them. It was a way, it was a weird time, you know. Something to be said about the the coalition forces. They, it was, it's amazing how many moving pieces were in that campaign, and you know, next to no fratricide. It's amazing to me, like the capability we have as you know, whoever's at the top, whether it's our people or or other people, we have an ability to communicate and then work out these schemes of war where we completely deconflict with the people around us. Our geometry, geometries of fire are great. And like, it wasn't always like that, hasn't always been like that. But I guess, you know, after 20 years of practicing war, uh, we got pretty good at it. But it's just pretty amazing to me. We had, um, we had the Brits and, and Mosh just to the north of us. And if we needed help, we could call them up. If they needed help, they could call us up. We didn't really bump into each other too bad. Our air was always deconflicted. So it's like those things are, I think, what a lot of people would in militaries would take for granted. You just think those things happen, and those things don't just happen. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I think we're, a lot I think of coordination. We're seeing that, like, on the, on the daily news kind of play out where you have the, you know, the revered Red Army come in and, and their communication and their and their resourcing and their tactics just don't look and you look like as, as somebody from that's been at war for the last you know how many 15 years from since i was a kid until now it's like i thought they were better than that and then you see it and it's like well they haven't been fighting for 20 years so they're gonna yeah. run into these they're gonna hit the growing pains that maybe we were experiencing in 2001 two, three, uh that just weren't widely publicized because you know yeah there's some some great points there ryan you know the things that really make professional militaries or logistics is one of them right and we saw the uh the abysmal failures of the russian logistics in in ukraine and, mm. uh and then combined arms right i mean where's where's their combined arms yep. uh, yeah they in, don't in have this them. conflict yeah um and, and you know we we practiced uh a lot on uh the you know, large-scale exercises of integrating um, different uh, weapon systems to get that you know horns of a dilemma for the enemy, mm-hmm. um, you know, with combined arms, and especially in the Marine Corps because we're you know it's it's all organic to the Marine Corps, which you know I think is a lot of the consternation behind Force Design 2030 mm-hmm. uh, as mm-hmm. well. Uh, when 
when people say, Hey, you know, we've, we've got a great, uh, uh, system here with this MAGTAF that works and it works for a reason because you have all of these, you know, combat elements, uh, that are supporting each other and providing these, uh, uh, you know, these capabilities that are all integrated. Mm. What do and you, pe- oh, sorry, go no, ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you no. off. I want you to breathe more on that. As far as force design 2030 is concerned, you think the old generals have it wrong? You think they're just uh, being short-sighted as far as what the technology is per- providing? Uh, or, you know, I interviewed Lieutenant Colonel uh, Resign Scheller not long ago, and, and and we talked about the same thing, and it's like he thinks they're focused on the wrong thing, but he, you know, he said until drones, we figure out how to just drop drones out of the sky, this is going to kind of be the way, and that's kind of the opinion that I have. Like, either get on board or you're going to get left behind, and we can, we can debate that uh, the platforms that were you know are going to be removed or already have been removed versus not. But like, what what say you to that? What's your thoughts on it? Well, I would say let's let's look at the Marine Corps' history. You know, we've we've always been a service that is um, paranoid about our existence for one, right? Because we don't we don't do anything that doesn't exist in the other services. Mm-hmm. Right, we're not an air force. We're not a, a you know, a, a land army. We're, we're soldiers that come from the sea, right? And the army can do that just as well as we can, and they they've proven that time and again, between World War II and you know Korea. Um, but what we've what we've always been good at is anticipating where the next fight is going to be, uh, and what we need to do in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. You, know, you take you take a look at uh, amphibious assaults, you know, amphibious landings. You know, we were looking at those in the you know twenties and thirties, um, and and shaping the force to be prepared for a fight coming in the Pacific, and then you get into things like you know the Korean War and doing you know vertical envelopment with helicopters, right? Mm. So all of these things that were unheard of at the time in the Marine Corps and close air support, mm. you know, mm. uh, you know we we basically you know, developed and perfected close air support, which is you know done by all the services now. So. Um, I would say this is another one of those pivotal moments where, you know, the only thing that will tell if we got it right is, is the next conflict when, when the force has changed and we'll see if we're prepared for it or not. But mm-hmm. I, I would say we've, we've got a pretty good track record of, of pivoting uh, the force pretty quickly to be ready for that next conflict. And I think that, the force as it uh, sits in you know 2020 or 2015 was just not it's just not a raid to to fight a, a near peer in the uh, you know anti-access aerial denial kind of environment uh, in the mm-hmm. Pacific where you've you've got to you know shoot move and communicate quickly you know signatures management becomes a thing you, you know we've we got pretty uh, spoiled over the last uh, couple of decades, of, mm-hmm. you know, being able to go back to a fob and, you know, rest and refit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and head out from there. Uh, but fobs are just big targets. Right. And, yep. you know, so we've, we've got to, we've got to pivot again and we've got to be uh, hard targets. We've got to be mobile. Uh, we've got to have capabilities that can reach out, touch, you know, the enemy uh, and, and somebody has to be that stand-in force, like mm-hmm. the combat the commandant talks about, right? Somebody's got to, you know, kick down the door and fight 
inside the house, uh, you know, where, you know, to, to create those gaps so the rest of the forces can come in. And I think the Marine Corps has, has always been uh, pretty good at doing that. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I don't know if the, uh, the league of generals that have come out against, um, you know, the commandant's uh, plan, I, I'm sure they have great reasons. Um, but I know, you know, I've been out of the Marine Corps for four years and I know that things change rapidly these days. And, mm. you know, I, I'm probably out of touch, uh, with what's happening because I'm not there on a daily basis. So it's, uh, it's easy for me to say, you know, this position in the comfort of my own home that, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's all messed up. And, um, but if you look at the way conflict is going, uh, taking Ukraine as an example, look at all the kinds of emerging technologies that are happening there that are changing the, uh, the course of the conflict, right? You've got kamikaze drones, you know, the, uh, switchblades, um, they've got, uh, artificial intelligence, um, you've got commercial, uh, space assets that are providing, uh, you know, intelligence and basically a steady stream command and control for the Ukrainians. Um, you've got volunteer forces, um, I mean, it, autonomous systems, um, you know, it's not going to be long until uh, we have a ton of autonomous systems, uh, you know, in all domains. So, And I've seen, you know, we talk about it a little bit when we get into the book here, autonomous systems. I don't, I don't know if that's something that we should, <laughs> that's scary, that, that's, it's scary to even say that to me. It reminds me of the, uh, you know, the movie Stealth, or if you wanted to take it all the way back to like Skynet and Terminator, like we better write those codes correctly and there better be some regulation as far as artificial intelligence is concerned, even amongst the military members. And I think, you know, you talk about, um, what is this, the Starlink satellite uh, communications going up with Elon Musk. And there's a couple of different things I'd like to talk about there. Uh, You know, what would we do? if we were in conflict with China and a Chinese citizen stood up a network of communications that we could no longer hack that the Chinese used to exploit us in the war, would we do something to that person? Would we consider them a, uh, a front to the, to the fighters that we're, that we're going at, at war with? It's very interesting and it's unprecedented because nobody's ever even been able to do it. But when somebody says, hey, I need help fighting this war, and then a different person, a non-state actor, has the ability to raise that, like, what's that mean? And and, and what are the implications of that in the future? Yeah, so you're saying is, is that, would that under the, uh, uh, the law of armed conflict, would that make that person a participant in in conflict yeah yeah and and would that uh would would they therefore be able to be targeted you know wherever they are um i I wouldn't say that that's direct participation in conflict um i mean but i i think that the law of armed conflict would still make a distinction between somebody that's providing a capability that's being used Mm -hmm. um because you could even argue that anybody in the military defense, you know, uh, industry that's providing capability could be complicit in that. If sure. you know, if you take that uh, line of thought to its logical conclusion, I I don't think that's the case. I think you know, direct participation in conflict is, you know, it's somebody on the battlefield that is uh, actively 
uh, you know, seeking out the enemy and trying to, uh, you know, trying to engage them somehow. But I think providing, you know, providing a commercial satellite network that allows people to talk, I think, I don't think that's the case. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just but, think, I, I just wonder where it goes and then where would the law, where, where would the lines be drawn? Because like, if it was somebody, a non-state actor that was doing something that enhanced, let's say, China's, you know, uh, command and control node over us, and it's something we couldn't do, could they get off on, well, we're just providing the commercial guys to the Chinese, you know, no, like, I don't think America would buy that if it was us suffering, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And hopefully we would all just follow the rules as they're written, but I don't know if that would happen. So, and then if they, if the, if the, if the laws of armed, clom, armed conflict uh, don't implicate him as a combatant for doing that, well, then there's no, like, that's just kind of like, I guess what I'm saying is like, we might think that, but if Russia doesn't feel that way and if Russia feels like he's complicit, then, you know, they can do whatever they want, I suppose. And then that, you know, their, uh, their retaliation will come if there has to be retaliation. But I just think it puts it in a weird spot where a private citizen, a non-state actor can have that much, um, uh, whatever you would say, influence over war zone. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's, uh, it's interesting to see, um, to see it play out. Um, <clears throat> you know, you talked about um, the Chinese. I mean, there was just recently a, uh, I think it was yesterday it came out a uh, report about TikTok, right? I mean, mm. TikTok, TikTok's basically an intelligence gathering platform, yeah. right? Yeah. Everyone's uploading all their personal details and information and uh, on the, on the end user uh, over there in, in China, they're probably, you know, collecting uh, profiles and you know, dossiers on all these folks that are just willfully giving up things that we used to cover under OPSEC. Right. So mm. um it's interesting because a lot of people's passwords now are facial recognition. And when you do TikTok and filters, all you're giving them is every single piece of facial recognition uh, that they need. So, um, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, or you think of it this way. If, uh, if everybody in the military uploaded their, uh, their facial features to a video and the, your enemy decided to build uh, an autonomous system that used uh, autonomous target recognition based off of facial recognition, you know, AI software, you'd already have a database of all the people you needed to hunt down and kill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and their common patterns and usages and uh, interests and hobbies. And yeah. Yeah. Connections. Yeah, you're basically just giving away pattern of life information. So yeah. scary. Yeah, it is scary. It's interesting to say the least. It's a lot of things that changed in the last, you know, whatever, 20 years uh, that um, I guess in the book you kind of talk about, does it revolutionize war? Does it change the means from the end? Uh, and like, I, I think I'm on the same boat. This is the, the drones didn't really change it. They become a tool in it. Is it the means is still going to be the means and, the end's going to be the end, but it's definitely revolutionized like how we fight, I think. And like to get back to force design uh, just a little bit for a minute, uh, Gunnar LaRose put an article out. I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was the Marine Times or the Gazette, but he followed out uh, one of the line companies uh, th kind of through their 
range 400 and uh, 410 alpha and like they used um something like the switchblade you know kamikaze drones mm-hmm. and it went really it went really well like from reading the uh, the article by the time that the marines were actually crossing the lod everything was smoldering already from from <laughs> from drones and as they're on the move you know they're unmasking technical vehicles targets that were technical vehicles and as they're coming in the marines never had to slow down once they crossed the lod until they got to the objective is what it seemed like because as these technical vehicles would displace these kamikazes are coming straight down and neutralizing them boom 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 and it's like if that is the future, and that is really the capability that we have, is we have these switch, these switchblade, kamikaze-style drones supported by you know remote-piloted aircraft above, and some of those hero drones, some of the bigger armed predator drones, uh, and we have those above. Do we need to have tanks out there? And if you do have tanks, let's assume that everybody has the same technology that we have. It's kind of pointless. If you don't have something protecting the airspace from drones coming in and hitting your tanks, why would you even have them anymore? And, I mean, I think that that's kind of like one of the biggest takeaways from watching some of the the live stuff coming from Ukraine and Russia is, like, they're taking drones that are these commercially sold drones and outfitting them with dumb bombs and mortars and just dropping the enemy's armor. I mean, like, and not risking a life for it. So, on that side of the force design, when you take away the tanks and maybe some of the long cannons, I disagree with a little bit, maybe not, depending on the ones you take away. But you take tanks and some of that stuff away, I kind of I kind of feel like putting it on the battlefield with the technology and drones now is kind of stupid. So I agree with that that side of it. What What's your feelings on that? We, we've only had like two tank battalions in the Marine Corps, you know, during my entire uh entire time Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. uh, in the service and um you know the times that i saw tanks at exercises and integrated with them and saw them uh you know integrated into the scheme of maneuver uh i you know i thought they were a fantastic asset to have right there's nothing like that shock factor of a tank rolling through your city Mm -hmm. um but they have to be protected they've got to be protected uh, from inf- you know with infantry uh, they've got to be protected from from the air threat so really i think what we're adjusting to is the fact that we now face an air threat and the air threat could come from from anywhere at any time uh, and we haven't really had to face this mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. significantly for you know decades so the the counter to that has been really slow you've you know, it's slow to evolve. And I, I told you I was an air defense guy. Mm. Um, one of the things I was studying for the majority of my career was, was the UAS threat or the drone threat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even uh, as, as far back as 2005, I used to teach a class on the, the drone threat to the MAGTAF. And I would talk about how it was the fastest growing uh, field of aviation mm. uh, across the globe. And it's one of the fastest growing threats to the MAGTAF. And, and, you know, you, we value what we put our, our, uh, our money towards in the budget. Mm-hmm. And we just kept cutting air defense units. And it was probably uh, the wake up call is probably uh, around 2014 when ISIS started dropping mortars from drones yep. uh, on our troops in Iraq. And we're like, hey, we, we have no effective counter to this. 
Uh, we couldn't really target it with a Stinger missile. You know, it's, it doesn't put off enough heat signature. It's too small. Uh, it's not a good weapon to target match. You know, you're not yeah. going to fire $100,000 missile against a you know, $1,000 drone. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think we're, we're adjusting to that. But, you know, tanks, in my opinion, um, I think they're, for the Marine Corps, they're, you know, they serve a purpose uh, at times. Um, but I, I don't see us, you know, suffering significantly by trading that in for some, uh, more precise, uh, anti-ship cruise missile units or, uh, some drone units, uh, that can reach out and, you know, uh, fire some hellfires or some, you know, drop some GBUs. I, I just, I don't see that, but, yeah. um, I agree. I, I think if you look at a um, couple of conflicts, like we talked about earlier, Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, and the, how effective the uh, Barakhtar TB2s from Turkey were in that conflict mm-hmm. of just completely turning the tide of the conflict. Um, and then, you know, how effective drones have been in Ukraine. Um, you know, we've, we've got to adjust. Mm-hmm. We've, we've, and we can't buy these exquisite. I mean, we are buying exquisite platforms. We're buying MQ9s for the for the MAGTAF. Uh, but the sweet spot for us is probably something that can be employed at the squad level, mm-hmm. the, co- the the company level, uh, that doesn't require a lot of training. Uh, there's a lot of autonomy built into it, um, and you can you can mass and swarm and over overwhelm a target. Uh, yeah. kind of like what you're talking about on range 410 there, right? Just, yeah. you got all these precise fires at that level and it's, it becomes a game changer, right? Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of that in the book, a lot of your, um, a lot of the personal experiences that you got from interviews with pilots or with, uh, with operators, uh, sensor operators and, and we'll cover a little bit of that, but, um, it's a game changer. It's, the reason I wanted to have this conversation because it's something that has absolutely changed uh, everything about war and it doesn't have to be these big commercial expensive units that we're getting. I mean, these guys are being able to to buy these things off commercial sites uh, at low dollar and then, and you know, tie dumb bombs to them. Like you say, dropping mortars and things of that nature. And uh, that's something that when you said 2014, it became a problem. And, and I was, I retired that year. I got out that year. So it's like, I didn't ever see it. I never, never had that threat. I never thought like, Oh, I hope that's my drone. You know, I never had to think that. And now, now everybody has to think that. Um, and so you said the last, it was it the last six years that you were operating, uh, ideally or, or most specifically with the drones and, and kind of seeing that. Yeah. It's really the last four years of my career. I spent a couple of years in the Pentagon working on, um, programmatics and budgets and stuff for our, uh, our UAS uh, squadrons and capabilities. And then um, I got to a point where they were opening up an officer MOS for, for UAS pilots. And, you know, I was getting kind of long in the tooth in my career. And I, I remember I, I asked a colonel, I was like, you, you think I should throw my name in the hat for this and transition into this? Um, he said, yeah, you know, we, we need people at all ranks to to form out these units. Uh, so go ahead. So I, I, I 
put my name in for a transition conversion board, got selected, went through the Air Force's uh, remotely piloted aircraft uh, training pipeline, and uh, you know went out to the squadron uh, VMU-3 in Hawaii when they moved in 2014, served as the OPSO, the XO, and then the CO for the last 26 months of my career. So... light needs to be shed on this topic we need to we're not having a conversation that we need to be having is my is my guess what are those what are those situations that kind of pique that interest yeah so there's a couple of things um for 24 of the 26 months i was in command we were supporting uh some operations overseas against a violent extremist organization uh, and i was sending detachments over there every six months and we were we were basically uh, just hunting, right? We're out there looking for IR signatures. And uh, when we would find them, we'd, we, we weren't armed, but we would call in, you know, locations and, you know, artillery and, uh, you know, close air support would be raining down on those targets. And you know, we're pretty successful. We had, uh, we had a kind of a running tally of uh, how many enemy killed in action. We, we felt we were responsible for it. It was, it was uh, over a hundred uh, in, you know, two years. So, uh, pretty effective, uh, you know, platform. Um, and when I got to the end of my career, I started thinking a little bit more about, you know, not necessarily my Marines and how they responded to that work. Um, but I went to this transition seminar and they said, you know, if you could do anything when you retire, what would it be? And I said, well, I want to, I want to get paid to write smart ass comments. <laughs> and they said, well, I don't think anyone's going to pay you for that. So what would, what would you do? And I said, well, I've always wanted to you know, write a book. And they said, well, what would you write about? And I said, well, I'd, I'd write about what I know. And, you know, I, I know, I know drones. Um, you know, I've been a Marine for two decades. I think there's some stories I could tell. Um, I just need to find, you know, kind of the topic that would, uh, that needs some research and, you know, needs, needs some light shined on it. So I came up with a title. Um, this is the first thing that I did is, um, I, you know, I came up with on killing remotely based off of Grossman's on killing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had an idea. I said, I want to, I want to study this community based off of this, you know, the same, uh, uh, rubric that the Grossman did where he looks at all kinds of different factors for how, mm. you know, the human response to killing and conflict um, and, and why people respond the way they do. Cause I think this is such a, a unique community of people that are doing things differently than we've ever done before. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to see, you know, how, how does it impact them? So I, I actually wrote to Grossman on uh, LinkedIn and I said, Hey, I've, I've got an idea uh, for a book. I want to write with you, you know, and I never expected to hear back from him. Right. It was yeah. one of those things. I was like, Oh, you know, it's, it doesn't hurt to ask. Yep, yep. And, and he wrote back about a week later and said, Hey, that, Hey Wayne, this is a really cool idea. Let's do it. And uh, at that point I was like, Oh, well, um, now I really good. Now the work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I got to do this. He said, yes. So I said, okay, this is awesome. Uh, now what do we do? And, so he, he kind of mentored me through this whole process of, uh, you know, first person interviews and, you know, sure. uh, 
research on everything that's been written on the topic and conducting surveys and, mm. you know, and, and naturally the more I got into it, um, you know, the air force is doing the, uh, predominance of the, of the killing with drones, right. Cause they had the armed platforms. So the more people I talked to were, uh, were air force pilots and sensor operators and intelligence analysts and, and the stories that they started telling me that, you know, some of my talk about in the book were just, um, they were, uh, they were overwhelming to me in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Some of those interviews were, were like cathartic. I felt like I was, uh, more like a psychologist, uh, you know, than I was, uh, an author trying to, uh, you know, collect some information from folks. Yeah. Um, and I said, you know, there's a ton of challenges that, uh, this community faces and nobody really advocates for them. Uh, nobody tells their side of the story. You know, you get, um, it's, it's one of the most useful tools we have in our arsenal, but the people that are employing it uh, are referred to as, you know, desk jockeys or video game nerds and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, the Air Force is just slaying people with these RPAs and, and their pilots are just completely marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to study that. I wanted to understand, you know, how people respond, why they respond the way they do to this work. And then, you know, where are the pain points and what can we, what can we change to make the community better? Cause this isn't going away, right? We're no, it's the uh, future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So totally agree. Well, uh, let's get into the book a little bit. I have a couple of different, uh, pages marked out, uh, some excerpts that if you, uh, if you, if you don't mind, I, I'm just going to go ahead and, uh, read the excerpt and then kind of we'll kick the conversation that spawns off of that. All right. Going to the book now. And then uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to read the whole book and I'm only going to read small snippets. If you guys you guys need to pick this book up and read all this information for yourself. Um, and like I said, conversational spawn out of it. Chapter two, an insatiable appetite rise of the robots. And uh, the caption above says before the war, the predator predator had skeptics because it did not fit the old ways. Now it was clear that the military does not have enough unmanned vehicles. We're in entering an era in which the unmanned vehicle of all kinds will take a greater importance in space and land in the air and at sea. And this chapter kind of uh, sets the construct for how much. Okay. So basically exactly what it said, the appetite from the DOD, it was uh, uh, unquenchable. Let's say the thirst, they wanted more and more and more. Can you talk about what you how, how you constructed that chapter and the research that went into that. Cause you talk about it being, um, in that chapter, they can't get enough of it. They're the, the, uh, the, the want and the need for these, uh, newer, uh, more advanced systems was more and more. And then you talk about almost the voyeurism of it, uh, in that chapter as well, a little bit. Yeah. So having full motion video piped into, uh, operations centers, uh, you know, from the company level up to the uh, division and MEF and even, you know, the CENTCOM level uh, or, or even higher, uh, you know, going into the Pentagon and things like that. Having live streaming full motion video provided from an asset that's overhead in real time. Um, when, when people saw that for the first time, 
they couldn't get enough of it. And they said, I want more of this. I need more of this. This gives me situational awareness of what's happening. Right. And, and what commander, what commander doesn't want to know, you know, in real time, what his forces or her forces are doing, uh, you know, on the battlefield, because they want to be able to influence the outcome and they feel like they, they know more by being able to see it. Uh, So we, we rapidly expanded this capability across all the services and across all different platforms from like the hand launch stuff that you, you employed mm-hmm. or, or have seen uh, all the way up to, you know, predators, reapers, uh, things like that. There was a period of time where we, we had two uh, VMUs, uh, the Marine unmanned aerial vehicle squadrons mm-hmm. in the, in the Marine Corps. Uh, and we had two for quite a long time. And the, at the start of, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, and probably until 2008 timeframe, so about a five-year period, these two units uh, were the most deployed units within the DOD because they needed to be forward deployed. So they would spend seven months in Iraq, five months back home, uh, doing their rest, you know, uh, respite period, their uh, all that stuff. And then they begin their workup period again. And, you know, in five months later, they're there. Um, so we, we just ran those units into the dirt. Um, you know, hardly, hardly anybody would, would stay, uh, in the Marine Corps. If you knew that that was your, your five years or your, you know, your, your four years of an enlistment, it was going to be spent doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with no end in sight. So we lost a lot of, you know, quality talent to that. Um, they added a third VMU squadron. They added the ability to send things in detachments as opposed to the full squadron deploying. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, combatant commanders throughout the, uh, the globe saw this capability and each one of them said, Hey, I need my ISR platform. I need, you know, specific lines dedicated to me here in Paycom or CENTCOM mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, AFRICOM. I mean, you name it. So the, the appetite for it just kept growing and growing. It, it got to be uh, so uh, insatiable that we had to hire um, basically defense contractors to fly these things. Uh, and we, we leased the service we basically leased camera hours. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's where you get all these things like scan eagles uh, flying around. Um, and then we'd have Marine, you know, intelligence folks that would, we'd be sitting on the crew and passing that information off. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it, it, I'd like to say that it's, you know, it is declined as, as uh, conflict has slowed down in certain areas, but it hasn't, yeah. it is, it's still the same, appetite and none of the the cocoms have said no i can do with less isr yeah right yeah so it just keeps growing <clears throat> and as a ground guy i can say when you have isr above me and you can tell me what door those guys just took those rpg warheads in and exactly what i what you see on the inside because it doesn't have a roof over the courtyard and you can like when you're giving all that to me uh, through the radio as I'm making my movement to the objective building. Yeah, I love that too. There's no doubt about it. But I do find it funny. I was just at a uh, best sniper competition out in Lejeune just a, like a month ago, month and a half ago. And one of the vendors that was there, you know, getting their name out 
was the fire from enclosure law uh platform the light uh, light armor rocket and uh they've made them the signature on them now they used water and some other engineering to make the signature only a nine millimeter signature so that the signature drones out in russia can't id them uh firing rockets and put counter battery on them and then they they put uh i don't know if these are in action in in uh, ukraine right now or not but i know he said that they have tested putting dual ffe laws on a quadcopter and it's mm. like okay well like if you've done that and you lowered the signature and the signature of the quadcopter so small that their uh, radar can't pick it up well, well then yeah there's no point in having armor unless you can protect the armor because that's just going to double whammy as catastrophic kill and it's over right and so i found it funny though that we're at you know we're not at actively in the war you know per se right now and they're still at every vendor fair and still on base and still moving them and still talking about what they can do and they had all kind of robotics there not just flying ones they had you know other stuff more um pretty wild i'm gonna go back to the book right here and you talk about uh you talked about ISIS before you lacing up dumb bombs said in 2016, the Islamic state modified commercial off the shelf drones to drop grenades and mortars on troops, equipment and buildings in Iraq and Syria. Subsequently, the, the Islamic state claimed to be the first terrorist group to successfully weaponize small drones and kill with it. In Ukraine crowdfunding for the civilian populace aided in the development of small commercial drones to support the Ukrainian army's fight against the Russian backed separatists. The upsurge in, uh, of cheap commercial off-the-shelf drones meant that anyone could field an Air Force on a modern battlefield. And that kind of goes back to speak a little bit about what we were saying before. Now you kind of have to worry about it no matter what theater you go into. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, in that that volunteer crowdsourcing thing you're talking about in Ukraine is, I mean, that's in full swing right now. <laughs> yep. um, in fact, I'm connected with a group of uh, people that are um, actively seeking you know, donations for uh, funds that they, uh, they use to get drones in the hands of, you know, people fighting uh, over there in Ukraine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a wild situation. I don't know necessarily as far as that one goes, I don't know where to fall out on it. I don't know. I'm talking about one of the most corrupt countries as far as things that we know with Ukraine. And I know they got some new leadership what Zelensky was able to do as far as uh, be the person that he needed to be for his people and to rally the world, not just his own country, but the world to, uh, is amazing. It's just a side of unbelievable, honestly. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I, I think leaders uh, rise to the occasion hmm. and Zelensky has proven that he's, he's a leader and he's probably always been a leader. He just, you know, he faced uh, his country's darkest hour and, and he had the opportunity, if you remember the beginning of the conflict where we said, hey, we can evacuate you mm -hmm. to safety. And he's like, you know, I don't need to leave. I need support. This yeah, I don't is my need a ride. I need bombs and jets. That's right. Yeah, it's my country. Um, it's interesting. I don't know how it's going to play out. I do know that <laughs> I do know that it's interesting. It's um it's so weird to feel like we're talking. I have these conversations with everybody, and every time it feels so weird. It's just like you have Russia. They want what they want. They don't really care what we think about that. They're going to continue to not care what we think about that. No matter how many off-ramps the DOD and Homeland Security and all these other people try to 
push into into Russia. How about this off ramp? How about this off ramp? Like when you think about it, this guy is an extreme KGB spy. He he didn't want the fall to ever happen, and then once it happened, then you look at what NATO's done, and uh, you know, like kind of just working right around him, going past every red line for the last thirty years that he said that he was going to have, and and so it's just weird. It's weird to see what will happen for it. I think that if you are Vladimir Putin and you say, okay, I'll take the L and I'll return home. I think you lose power anyway. I don't think your people stand, let you stay in very long. And if you don't take the L and you press this out and you sacrifice 20 or 30,000 of your sons of uh, Russia, I don't think you keep power that way very long either. And so it's like, what is he to do? Um, that's weird. I, I studied, I studied Vladimir Putin in, in, uh, in school when I was getting my Homeland security degree and, I wrote about him, looked him up, looked at all the things that he's done, and he doesn't care what our rules are, uh, and he hasn't cared what our rules were for a long time. So it makes it a contentious situation to which clearly none of our analysts have guessed right on what the prediction was, what he was going to do. <laughs> and so that makes it all the more uh, concerning for me is to say, well, you got it wrong all the way up until now, and now I'm supposed to trust that you got it right and you know what to do from here. Um but hopefully we got people thinking stuff up. So I'll get back to the book. Um, just, just, just a little bit ways uh, past that. You talk about Marine Special Operations Command. And out of necessity, Marsoc built a family of small UASs and filled the void internally to operate in every environment. Part of that small UAS family was a system that uh, was systems included what was called Lethal Miniature Aerial Munitions, L-M-A-M-S, LAMAMS. LMAMS. LMAMS. With the most prevalent one named the Switchblade from the manufacturer. Aerovironment. Aerovironment. Yep. Yeah. So, Martin. That's kind of in Ukraine right now, right? That you were talking about? Yeah. Marsoc is, uh, they've been using that for a decade, probably. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe, maybe longer, but they've, they've been using it and uh, they started off in Afghanistan with it. And, um, they had the ability to, you know, to cue that uh, to onto a target from from another small drone, and they're, uh, you know, they, out of necessity, as I said in there, they they figured out how to do it because they didn't get the, you know, the predator or reaper support that they were looking for, mm-hmm. um, so they built their own organic support, uh, and they've been way out in front of everybody for a long long period of time. They were kind of leading the the effort within SOCOM on on these, you know, small and miniature UAS. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been really exciting to see. And so how's that work? You said, so there's a, there's a unmanned drone up that is locking the target for, for the switch. How's it work? Well, one was uh, finding, finding the target and then queuing, queuing the operator of the switchblade, you know, providing, providing coordinates and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm don't want to get into too much of the the details of how it it tells them it relays like a a roundabout where to go and then they're able to launch that munitions into that yeah basically a spotter and a shooter right yeah 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 that's wild marsoc success employed in the split switchblades paved the way for the use of uh, for use and proliferation of small lethal uas's within regular military uh particularly army and marine corps and yeah, I just want to talk on that. That's revolutionized it. I had a guy on John Wayne Williams, gunnery sergeant type, and and he was one of the guys that went into Syria and crossed the flot uh, over there and did some fighting. Um, 
and they used him a lot. He was uh, he was uh, he was with some some other guys, some ODA guys that were up there at the time, and they had a pretty good budget, I think, uh, and a pretty good stockpile, and they were able to go over there and do some real damage with some of that stuff. And that was that would have been around um, sixteen. 14, 14 to 16 in that area. And, uh, yeah, so pretty wild there. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna flip forward right here. We talked about it a little bit before, uh, talking about the drone uh, seeming voyeuristic almost because of the amount of watch hours. And you mentioned leasing that out. I want to talk about that a little bit more too. Um, but in here you... In here you say, you're giving an excerpt from, I think it was Captain Wood, uh, described in vivid detail how he experienced the humanity of the targets he struck. He said, you were getting a really lo intimate look at, into a person's life because the cameras are so good. We watched a guy in place an IED in 30 uh, for 30 minutes and then go home and have a fight with his wife as he constructed more IEDs in the backyard. It was a very humanizing experience. It's incredibly voyeuristic. And that's quoting one of the guys that she interviewed there. I think that as I read the book, I, I felt like I understood a little bit more where the uh, the struggles, I guess you would say, is somebody at least that's watching the camera, whether you're an operator of sensors or, or a pilot. When I go over, there's that anger, and you talked about this a little bit in the book. I have the anger. I have the fight or flight because I'm right here and the danger is right in my face. And then you have the uh, mechanics of your brain and how it works of f filing things distorted so that you don't put them all together, kind of protecting you. And without that fight or flight mode being turned on initially, and you're in the simulator 7,000 miles away, but as Grossman talks about, the further removed you are from the actual combat, I think that's a lot because of the visuality of it too and the smells and the sounds. But now you're watching it in 4K, so it doesn't matter that you're on the other side of the world. You're living it right here in, four, in high definition, and you're going to see all of that. And, and I think that's a lot where, like, we don't do that. If we go do a yeah. battle damage assessment, especially there in the last couple, uh, especially in Marja, I mean, you go to do a battle damage assessment, a lot of times you were lucky if they didn't already have them wheeled away with the wheelbarrows and wash the blood off the sand just to mess with your mind or, you know, out of out of ritual. But these guys are not only taking action, but then they're going to hover over it and watch it for the next, you know, sometimes guys talked about some of you guys in here half a day, six, seven hours later, and they're watching, you know, family members come clean up uh, the remains of what they their munitions did and that that will absolutely do it there's no doubt in my mind yeah so one of the one of the things that you you mentioned you know grossman talked about uh was really the the resistance to killing as a function of your physical distance from from the enemy right he said the further removed you are uh the from from that uh physically the the less resistance you have to killing uh, and he takes it all the way up to what he, he referred to as, uh, I believe he called it the, the sexual range almost where you're, you're eye to eye and you can stab somebody. Right. And then he, he takes it all the way out to, you know, long range artillery and bombers and stuff like that. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, but what I wanted to, what I wanted to understand was where, where does a, a large armed drone fit in there? Because you're, you're physically, uh, you're at the extreme long distance, right? So your, your physical range is almost irrelevant because you're 
you're completely out of uh, harm's way, mm-hmm. but your, your distance, your cognitive distance to the fight uh, based off of everything that you're observing in high definition for long periods of time, your cognitive distance becomes extremely close. Yeah. And I, th- I think there, there's definitely something there to, uh, you know, typically we don't, we didn't uh, disassociate cognitive and physical distance, right. Uh, in the past, like your cognitive distance is the same as your physical distance. Right. Um, you know, you can only see so far and uh, beyond your line of sight, you're, you're just employing weapons beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, you're, uh, it's, it's just this strange situation where you're cognitively, you're, you're watching a person for uh, a very long period of time and you're, you're seeing the humanity of that individual. Mm-hmm. You're seeing things that you recognize uh, you know, as, as a typical dude would do, right. Taking their kids to school or kicking the ball around in the backyard or mm. fighting with their fighting with their wife. And then sometimes you see him do some, you know, nefarious shit. And, uh, you know, and that's the reason you're watching them in the first place. Cause you're looking for that opportunity to, you know, uh, to strike that target. So, um, it's the dehumanizing, um, becomes a lot easier the further you are physically removed. Um, but in this case, I think the physical distance is irrelevant. It's the cognitive distance to the target that makes it, uh, makes you understand the humanity of the target, makes it harder to dehumanize them in order to kill them. Sure. So, and that's going to be compounded the longer that you're on a specific target. Uh, yeah. Is what I would imagine. And you talked a little bit about that. Some of the guys um, in there that would follow, targets uh for long extended periods of time and then almost feel like they were robbed of their of their reward because one of the different shifts would end up getting the getting the kill before they came back on duty um almost like it was something was taken from them and i can kind of relate to that a little bit like on the ground on the ground if you have a big mission or big op coming up you know especially if you had you know uh skin in the game as far as you know maybe this mission was built around you losing somebody and you you had you had some unfinished business whatever the case and then if you're pulled off of that and then it goes up and the plan goes smooth and everything gets taken down you do i would say that you would feel robbed about that in the same in the same sort of way yeah Um, it's a strange sense of loss that uh that you feel ownership or, or the right to kill a person uh from time and uh effort invested yeah. Uh, I, I just, I find that fascinating, you know, fascinating. And, and one thing I want to, you know, we haven't really talked about this, but I, I do mention it in the book is that um, I just want to say that, you know, this isn't a suffering competition, right? So, so people, uh, people like to say, well, uh, you know, you're not in harm's way. There's no way that these, uh, you know, these drone crews can be suffering. You know, you're not either, you're not risking your life. What are you complaining about? Um, and I just want to say it's, I'm not comparing apples to apples here, right? I'm not saying uh, drone crews suffer and therefore that takes away from, you know, the, the, sure. peop- the people that are forward deployed, right? Uh, I, I, I'm not trying to make that argument at all. Uh, I think they just suffer a little differently in, in their own way. Sure. Sure. And no, I, 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 I feel like I picked that up from you throughout reading the book. I didn't feel like you were trying to diminish or, or degrade or take away from anybody on the ground, but more trying to show light that, hey, even though they're not on the ground, we have an issue here. 
and there may be certain things that we can do to make it better, but ultimately killing somebody in high definition, your cognitive distance to it is a lot of times closer than it was to me. You know, our average tick in Marja ranged from, you know, before before it got green in the summertime, 350 meters, I mean, might be a close engagement. And through your four-power RCO, it's a little closer, but it's not in high definition on a screen looking at you. You're not able to zoom in on him while he's taking a piss. Uh, some of our snipers maybe deal with a little bit of that and can deal with, you know, get that. But my cognitive distance is my physical distance. And most of the time, if I'm doing my job right, I got you pushed from 350 to 700. Yeah. You know, if I'm not doing my job right and I get ambushed, then my cognitive distance is going to be a whole lot different. But the other thing I would say is I'm not hanging out and picking this guy up. I'm putting him down, making sure I know that he's down. I'm reporting it, and then I'm maneuvering on whatever's left or getting back to wherever I'm, I came from. And I think that cognitively speaking and what they visually are going through uh, and taking into their brain is much more than – can be much more than guys on the ground. Everybody thinks that just because you're forward deployed and you're on the ground, you're in all this kinetic fight, and that's just not true. Most of our life is spent hydrating, pissing, being, being bored you know jerking off and then hitting like a repeat button like that is what you do over there sprinkled with little dashes of of high kinetics every once in a blue moon or once in a career you'll have a, a fallujah 2 or an operation mosh to rock 2010 or a or a sangin and those are those dashes and it's just those small number a couple hundred people that go through that real on the ground face-to-face -face suffering it's not thousands and thousands of people where here you're talking about they can't get enough drones and then they're making MOSs for uh, drone pilots. And, and and it seems like like what you said. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's going to continue to grow. So to not look at it and say, hey, all of you people that want to do the computer nerd thing, that's that's fine. You, you can have all your, uh, your, your fraternal little nicknames and stuff. But these people are doing numbers and you're not doing numbers. And, and they're really killing human beings and you're not doing any of that. So you just need to pipe down. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. Um, it seems funny to me that that would even be going on. But I come, I come from where you come from, and we're pretty much hard on our own people too. Like we would probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the worst offenders are are the people that wear the same cloth as you, right? They're, yeah, hundred percent. You know, yeah. It's because everybody's you know positioning to be the alpha. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. But I will say this: I've had predator uh, support. Uh, I've had Hellfire support from UAS in Marja, uh, and I've had a, I have a slew of buddies who couldn't say enough good things about uh, some of the newer stuff that that has come come along since then. Uh, page well, four, you know, on on that uh, same topic, I, I think it, there was a there's a part in the book where I I think it, the the title was called more more kills than Scarface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my sister squadron uh, on the flight line when I was a CEO was, um, uh, their, their name was Scarface. Uh, it was one of the HMLAs. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, Cobras and, and Hueys and, you know, those guys are, they're the meat eaters of the rotary wing world, right? They're the, they're the attack helicopters yep, yep. And, and, you know, and we'd, we'd go to meetings and I'd be with their CEO and, uh, other CEOs and, and our group commander who was also a Cobra pilot and, and, you know, they would be talking about what, what they've, what they've been up to. And I'd be like, yeah, I just want to remind everyone that we, 
we have more kills than Scarface this, you know, this month. And it would just piss, you know, it'd piss them off. Right. They're like, no, you, you're a little drone. Go back to your video game nerd, you know, and it's yeah, like, yeah. more kills than Scarface, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it was a lot of fun to, you know, to do that kind of stuff. It is funny. And, and just to put a, I want to kind of put a point on this, um, the risk that we forego by using you you know, unmanned, aerial systems when i was in marge i want to say it was in the month of, it was late june or early july we had skids in support of a squad that was in a tick and regardless of what happened or what mistakes may have been made or not made pilot made a decision to come in low to to fire some guns and some rockets and came to a hover and that pilot was shot down right in the belly with an rpg and both those captains died and that's horrible if that was a UAS, nobody dies. We lose, you know, a couple thousand dollar piece of equipment, maybe some ammunition if it doesn't simp debt, but nobody's dead. And that's the finer point that comes that we can get that exact same aerial support now without risking human life and American life. And that's the beauty in it if we can maintain it. Yeah, I that was a Sugar Bear and Weasel. Uh, I knew both those guys. Okay. In, fa well, in fact, in fact uh, my battalion was the... Uh, we were the the MEFs QRF uh, for the MEFs entire battle space, and we were we were spinning up to go in and um, you know pull them out of there. So yeah, uh, rough time, rough situation. And then the guys on the ground, not saying nothing bad against them. I'm not saying anybody. Like I said, I don't know the full story, but I know that it, I know that it touched everybody. And then consequently, you know, all of Marja wanted to come unglued because of the motivation of shooting down a bird. Uh, so they all come out of the woodwork. Um, but the rest of Sugar Bear and Weasel's fellas, they let it rain for the next three months until we left. Uh, anything that came in, the, tr the whole tree line went away. Uh, they definitely weren't, um, they weren't playing around after that. So, yeah, that was... Yeah, it's something else. It's something else. And that, 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 that's just the point I want to make on it is once we have this technology to send those skids out there with, with a pair of captains uh, risking it all doesn't make sense. Uh, if we needed to, if they figure out a way to knock the drones out of the sky and all of them start falling, we need to resort back to that, then cool. But if we can send a piece of equipment up there, whether it's autonomous, I, you know, and like we talked about that before or not, uh, it's better than sacrificing somebody's life. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's always going to be a role for, for boots on the ground. Um, That'll never go away. No, I, I hope not. I, I should you know, never these, go away. These over the horizon, you know, fights that we think we can, we can win. Um, I, I think there's no substitute for uh, physical presence yeah. um, uh, of being there, of, you know, living in and amongst the people and understanding their culture and, um, you know, feeling the same, you know, environment and pains that they're feeling, I think is, mm -hmm. it, you know, that's, that's what we do. Right. And, and drones are just an aid to make us do that better. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't think we should get to the point where we've got autonomous armies and, um, we just send in the drones and that's it. So yeah. that's, that's my personal opinion on it, but no, I agree. I agree completely. Uh, no, I wanted to highlight another part from the book here. You're, you're talking to um, Marine Staff Sergeant Christopher Herr. 
Mm-hmm. And it says he flew Group 3s 13 years, RQ-7 Shadows in Afghanistan, RQ-2 Pioneers in Iraq before that. Staff Sergeant Hur recounted several instances of flying in 2010 in Afghanistan when he was deployed for the Marine Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Squadron 3, VMU-3, and participated in Operation Mashtarak, the Battle of the Town of Marja, the last stronghold of the Taliban within Helmand Province, for two weeks prior to coalition forces seizing the city. Uh, her and his fellow Marines flew shadows over the city day and night, low altitude, and the RPA engines made a very distinctive loud noise similar to a lawnmower that could be heard easily, that could be easily be, be heard on the ground below. However, the Marines in the sh- however, the Marines used the shadows noise to their advantage as a psychological weapon to disrupt the enemy's sleep and desensitize them to the sound of RPAs that would later be used for target, target identification. Once the battle commenced during the flight, during one flight, her identified a man on his camera splashing water around some holes in the exterior wall surrounding a house. What appeared to be an innocent act, her rightfully interpreted as an enemy fighter preparing a fighting position, attempting to reduce the amount of dust the signature uh, that would appear when he fired his rifle at U.S. troops through a murder hole, a small hole in the wall used to shoot out uh, at the enemy to conceal their position. I thought that was interesting that you put that in there because that's something that we dealt with a lot in Marja. And obviously that's what he was talking about was Operation Mosterok in Marja. And they would have the, you know, interconnected cities, uh, interconnected compounds where you might be able to move from this compound through 35 other compounds and get out the other side without ever exposing yourself to the greater outside world. And then on top of that, they're prepping murder holes with water so that you can't see the dust fly up. They were very... Um, they're not stupid you know you know a lot of people want to say that they're stupid they're not they're not stupid people and they're very uh accustomed to fighting wars their 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 villages are built for it so yeah um, they're warriors yeah man from the beginning yeah 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 um i'm going to move now to another portion of the book it's a little a little further along and it talks about uh it talks about fairness in war. Um, I know that you're, you probably know where I'm talking about. Um, just bear with me while I pull it up real quick. The element of surprise, the enemy never sees it coming, is the kind of the caption here. And we'll skip, skip down a little bit back to the book. Throughout the history of warfare, humans have worked in every advantage, po- uh, worked every advantage possible, manipulating both the means of means and the environment to prevent a fair fight making it more difficult to square up against your enemy and kill them face to face you could argue that killing an enemy without your presence even being known has always been the ultimate goal of warfare especially if you can get it done in a manner that prevents the attacker from being at any risk in a situation this is the nature of killing with the rpa and at the moment of truth it may be easier to kill one's enemy and in on killing the aggressive predisposition of a killer was discussed and how much easier it was to kill than the pre- uh, kill when their presence remained undetected. That's the part that I pulled out. Uh, I kind of, I guess we kind of went over it a little bit more, uh, a little bit earlier already, uh, in the free dialogue there, but, uh, <laughs> it goes on to talk about whether that's fair or not. And, uh, and people like proponents, uh, against the UAS and, and our, you know, remote piloted aircraft, RPA community. It's like, what do you mean? It's not like, that's the whole point of it. The whole point of it is to make it as, as unfair as possible so that I can bend him to my will. 
Yeah. Uh, and and unfair is a good thing for that. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to fight fair fights, right? We right, we right. want to we want to have an overmatch that uh, uh, is so overwhelming that we always win. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And so, uh, when you say the proponents that go against are they anti uh, UAS crowd? Who is that? Have you dealt with these people? Have you met some of these people or talked to any of them? Um. Yeah, I mean, is it like activist uh, groups or? Yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, there's people that write about it. There's people that don't think that uh, that we should. It, it, most of it's aligned with some sort of political agenda, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it really depends on you know who's in office, uh, and they they'll say, oh, you know, you know, President Obama is using using drones to. Uh, kill more people than you know we've we've ever mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. killed killed before and is this right and are 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 we just uh you know causing more civilian casualties and is this uh you know is this harmful to the american way of fighting because we're not risking anything and um you know and then you get other people that that talk about uh, the amount of civilian casualties that have occurred in you know places like Pakistan and how the entire uh, Fatah area, that you know federally administrated tribal area within Pakistan, felt like they were uh, constantly under surveillance and they could have been struck from the air at any time, and it was really stressful for them, and, you know things like that. So usually the people that uh, that talk about drones in a negative way have some sort of agenda um uh, uh you know that they're whether it's against the war or you know against uh, a, a political leader or something like that they're trying to make a case for why employing drones is is, is bad mm -hmm. and you know i try to make the case that it's we we don't employ them uh by themselves uh hardly ever do we do we do that right they're they're integrated into some sort of um other system where you have additional assets people on the ground or other aviation assets yep. or things things like that so it's not it's not like we think we're going to win a, a fight by just sending drones um but there are there are people that think that uh drone crews are just cold-blooded killers that are just killing with no remorse and it's um you know, I don't, I don't understand where they, uh, where they come up with these ideas. Um, you know, we've been fighting, uh, using systems and weapons that can be employed well beyond visual line of sight for quite a long time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they, they specifically want to focus on drones. Um, yeah, it's, it's become a political issue probably, the last few presidents and anytime there's a drone strike that's uh controversial you you hear about it you know yeah. it makes the it makes the news so yeah i think most notably was hamid karzai right the drone strike as a response to the uh to the explosion at the gate and then that turns out that it was a bunch of women and kids and uh you know that 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 to me I guess that's a good segue into bring up like with the amount of technology that's there and the amount of 4k zoom and 
-hmm. and eyes that we have. It is very strange to me that we would have hit a vehicle full of women and kids. I'm not asking you to comment on that, but when I read your book, it seemed like there's so many SOPs and protocols that come through for when we're going to hit a, you know, a target through one of these platforms. It seemed like there's a lot of, you know, like obviously there's a chain of command, you know, you got your sensor operators, you got your pilot, you got your people that are releasing, and then you got command authority that's releasing all that. And it just seems really strange when you have that kind of capability and that kind of eyes that you would hit a vehicle with a bunch of women and kids. And maybe that's why it becomes political. Um, and, and like you said, like, I don't know who the, which, which president out of the last several has the most, but I know that under Obama it grew significantly and a lot of strikes were done under Obama. And not that I care. If there were strikes that were bettering the American uh, resolve and, 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 and political end state, then, then okay, that is what it is. And if it's drones that are being sacrificed and hours that are being sacrificed versus people like me that are going to go out there and be mangled uh, when they step on a bomb that they didn't see, then, then I'm all about it. But... Um, you know, uh, I would I would say this, Ryan, the um, um, the fact that we still make mistakes, even with all of that intelligence and full motion video and, and, and things like that is is because it's it's a human endeavor uh, where it's still humans that are making decisions. It's humans that are analyzing the situation, mm-hmm. humans that are you know taking in all of that intelligence and fusing it all together. Uh, and, and nothing is entirely certain, you know, we, as much as we want to eliminate the fog of war, uh, it, there's still going to be, uh, friction. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be fog and we're still going to make mistakes. Uh, I, I've never said that drones are, are going to be a, a clean way of fighting. Uh, I, I think that they, they offer some advantages, uh, and some additional capabilities, like persist persistence and uh, what I like to refer to as tactical patience. Um, you know, there's should, shouldn't be a rush to strike. Um, that situation was obviously uh, because of the context of what happened, like the car bomb, uh, they tied some signals intelligence to uh, the wrong person. Uh, they followed this person, you know, the pattern of life uh, basically became a signature strike based off of a uh, pattern of life information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they tied it all together and said, we think that this is going to be, you know, another car bomb and they they got it wrong. Yeah. 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 No. And I'm not, I'm not, it's not a way to say I criticize it. It's just, if you like, if the question comes up, I wonder how this would be political. That's the first thing that would come to mind with all this technology and all this capability and all this video, you, you still are messing it up. And I understand fog of war and I, and I get it. I wish mm-hmm. we didn't kill innocent people. Um, yeah. there's enough people dying already to kill innocent one sucks, but, uh, in war, there will always be collateral damage. And I don't care if that's with drones and fully autonomous vehicles or boots on the deck coming to your door. There will always be accidents and there will always be collateral damage. And so I was talking to like an old, old lieutenant of mine, uh, one of my mentors, and it's like, you gotta, at, at some point you gotta draw the line and say, at what point is it worth going to war right now? And, the, and if the answer is you are not willing to kill unarmed civilians, then you shouldn't go to war as a country right then. 
Because when you go to war, you are going to kill unarmed civilians. It's going to happen. And I don't mean you're going to murder them. I mean accidentally through through wrong sig signals, intelligence, and, and patterns of life, these things are going to happen. So if you are not ready, if the, if, the, if the act was not so egregious that you're ready to do that, then you shouldn't even be there. Because that, yeah. is, that is how fundamental casualties of war is going to be on a civilian population. Well, I mean, it was it was like huge international news, right? That strike and and what a lot of folks really wanted was accountability. Like, oh, you killed innocent civilians. I want accountability. Uh, and I was interviewed on on NPR uh, for this, and I was talking with uh, a, a person who was obviously uh, demanding accountability. And she said, "Do you think someone will be held accountable for it?" And I said, "No, it's not a war crime. It's a mistake." You know, we didn't deliberately violate, you know, the rules of engagement, the law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law. We legitimately thought that was a valid target when when we authorized that strike. We just we, we got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we just need to continue to learn from those situations. And well, what would what would accountability even look like at that level? I, accountability yeah. may look like, yeah, we got it wrong. And that's your accountability. It was an accident. Yeah. We did not mean to do it. We did yeah. make this mistake and we got it wrong. That might be as much accountability as you're going to get at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and people just need to learn to be okay with that, I suppose. Um, and here you, uh, you drop Clausewitz, Carl von Clausewitz theories on war are widely accepted as dog, uh, as dogma among the vast majority of military scholars, according to Clausewitz on war, war is the continuation of politics by other means. He describes war as a duel between two sides and goes on to define war as, quote, an act of force to compel an enemy to do our will. Clausewitz stated that this is the objective in the nature of war and that it is enduring and does not change. What changes is the character of war, how it is executed and the weapons used, otherwise known as the means of war. Clausewitz recognized that the nature of humans and civilization to make advancements in technology and improvements in the weapons used in war, but ultimately the duel between two sides and the constant struggle to bend the enemy's will, uh, bend the enemy to our will does not change. And again, we've talked about that and talked about that as, as we've had conversation. Uh, yes, it changes things. Yes, these drone capabilities uh, change the way things look. But at the end of the day, it's not going to change the fact that it's a political, a continuation of a political uh, objective. All right. Um, 304. Last one I got for you. The last excerpt I got. And, um, and it really just dealing with the future. It's towards the end of the book. And what the future looks like. I think we've said that it looks like drones. Looks like drones are going to be in the future. I think we've said that multiple times. But in your opinion, as far as what the what the services are doing now and what you well, it, I know you removed a couple of years, but what you're seeing and what you're following through, um, what's the future look like? And what would you say? I'm not going to read them straight out of the book, but what would you say are some things, some best practices that the drone community should keep in mind when we're moving into this future? Yeah, I would, I would say the trends are that we're we're moving towards more and more autonomy, um, in air, land, you know, sea domains, um, and and we're doing that out of a necessity because uh, because the OODA loop, right? 
everyone's familiar with the OODA loop. You've got to you know, observe, orient, decide, and act faster than the enemy. Uh, and if your enemy is, uh, is building autonomous systems that can identify targets and fire on you, then you need to be able to you know, act inside that loop in order to defeat them. And if you're trying to do that uh, through a remotely operated or remotely controlled uh, pl platform, such as a you know an MQ9 you know Reaper these days, uh, your decision making cycle is going to be uh, longer than your enemies. Um, the more you automate, the the faster your uh, your decision making cycle will be. Um, so I think we will see more and more of that. Uh, those kinds of systems deployed uh, through manned and unmanned teaming where you have somebody that's in charge of a you know a fire team or a squad of unmanned systems uh, or or wingmen if they're flying and they send them forward to go do a specific task um, you know within a uh, within a time and, and space uh, restriction uh, where you can allow that sort of autonomy to occur <clears throat> what I what a very um, cautious about what I'm worried about, I guess, is, is if we get to the point where we have a lot of systems that become offensive in nature with autonomous target recognition, where the system makes the decision, um, one that it positively identifies it as a legitimate target. That's probably the hardest part because once you've made that determination without a human, you know, once you PID the target, it doesn't really matter if the human says engage it or not. Uh, so the, the PID, I think of, yes, this is a, this is a valid you know, military target, I think has to be, there has to be a human in there somewhere. Um, that human could be in real time or it could be in the planning stages, you know, but somewhere you have to have human involvement that uh, says these are your legitimate targets that you can engage. Yeah, and how would how would a fully autonomous uh, platform work? Let's say when we have a tick situation and they're supporting troops in contact, that's where I don't see it making. If you could send it out on a regular patrol and it could acquire positive identification and it could eliminate, like that would be pretty awesome. I'm with you saying that we probably need to leave a human in that decision making process. But especially when you've got guys like me on the ground and they're moving around and maneuvering on the enemy or the enemy's maneuvering on them, mm -hmm. I don't know how it distinguishes one from the other if it's in a if it's in a close tick like that. And I don't know if I would want it to. I feel like I would want the G2 of a human. And maybe, maybe that's just my ignorance and not understanding what they could provide uh, algorithmically and autonomously. But... But yeah, that's one of those things moving around and you got close quarters fight going on. Then what? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, uh, sis systems that are built with autonomy do really well in well-defined environments uh, where the the outcome is you know, fairly the same uh, through repetition. It's and, predictable. And like, yeah, you, you have like a predictable predictable outcome where, where autonomous systems don't do well is when you come into novel situations, mm -hmm. like things that they haven't encountered before. And, and that's where humans are really good at, you know, identifying, um, you know, this is a new situation, but I can, 
I can determine what to do based off of what I know mm-hmm. or, and what I know should be done. Um, it, it's going to be the same with, you know, self-driving cars, mm-hmm. right? You know, self-driving cars, when they, um, when they run into a novel situation that they've never encountered before, how, how are they going to do that? Like, the, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've got to get uh, past that point where they can navigate through all of those novel situations that you encounter on a daily basis when you're driving. Right. Think of how much of your your interaction driving is based off of you know nonverbal communication with other drivers on the road. Like you pull up to a four way stop, and the person across from you you got there before them, but or, or they got there before you, but they they kind of you know give you the head nod or wave you through, right? You know how does how does an autonomous system uh, navigate through that uh, situation? How do they navigate through a, a tick situation where you have, you know, friendlies that are, you know, danger close to, uh, you know, enemy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have those answers, but I mean, there's, there's drones that can navigate indoors just using computer vision to avoid obstacles. Um, they can navigate through a forest, you know, with, with no human control. Um, yeah, we're, we're there. It's just, what do we allow them to, to actually do so it read understand it especially you guys that are hitting still and going down range understand this book can give you a wealth of information it gives you tons of uh dialogue from different interviewees that uh that wayne interviewed on on kills first kills second kills uh shift work which is something that we didn't cover a whole lot of which seemed to be a a prominent thing that you continue to kind of harp on in here is going in and out of uh shift work and in and out of a combat zone essentially um and uh if you're operating drones if you're operating sensors pick the book up understand what the people uh came before you struggled with uh or struggle with still and uh be better read in from how you can combat that um coming up uh Lieutenant Colonel Phelps, thanks again. I appreciate having you out. I appreciate you covering the book and and being open to have the dialogue. And I appreciate the work that you put into it because it's clearly clearly well-researched and well-written and definitely one of the better books and favorite books that I've read uh, on the topic. So I appreciate you. And if you have any parting words, uh, hit me. Well, I appreciate you, Ryan. And I appreciate you, uh, uh, you know, talking to veterans and, 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 and folks and just, covering tough topics and, and having real conversations. Um, you know, these are, these are the moments where people, uh, you know, listen and learn and, 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 you know, if I could touch, uh, just one person that's influenced in a positive way through this, uh, you're doing it all the time, right? You're bringing folks on here and you're having those tough conversations. And if it, if it uh, helps somebody go get uh, help that they need or identify that their, their struggles are not unique, that there's uh, folks out there that are going through the same thing. You know, the, the community and the, uh, the esprit de corps doesn't stop when you take the uniform off. Right. It's, Man, that's a fact. It's, yeah. It's, it's uh, semper fidelis, right. We're always faithful. So I, I, I really appreciate you reaching out to me and, and inviting me on here to uh, discuss this today. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. And uh, guys, till next time, Choices Not Chances. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. 
You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances Podcast. Thanks and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a bloody bucket. Yeah. Yeah.